0: At this time, the children are dismissed for Children's Church, so if you are in that category, you are dismissed. The rest of us, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, a very familiar story for many of us. We started it last week looking at the feeding of the 5,000, and we're going to continue our work, work our way through John chapter 6. As we think about uh, Jesus, as we think about uh, the miracles that He has, again, John chapter 20, verse 31, tells us why John is writing what he is writing, verses 30 and 31. Again, now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. So these signs are given, these these miracles that we see are given by John to affirm and to confirm our faith and trust in who Jesus is. And we just, last week, we've seen Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now that says 5,000 men, there's probably upwards of maybe 20,000 people who were fed by Jesus and now we get to a point where Jesus does another miracle, but it's all couched in this. It's, it's, um, if you look at John chapter 6 as a whole, it's all about bread from heaven. It's all about manna from God. And what we find in the beginning of John chapter 6 is the feeding of the 5,000 is talking about you know, Jesus providing. At the end of John chapter 6, he's um, with the crowd, and he's talking about, you must you know, feast on my flesh, you must drink of my blood in order for you to love me. Um, that means believing in, in Jesus. We're not talking about cannibalism, which is what some of the early Romans thought. But in the midst of this, in the midst of John chapter 6, then we have this other miracle that takes place. This Jesus walking on water uh, as he leaves the feeding of the 5,000 to where he goes into the discourse. Now, the trajectory of this particular uh, section of Scripture is one where we begin to ascend, and we actually get to sort of a height a mountain height, and then what Jesus does is then we go plummeting down like, I don't know, maybe Space Mountain at at Disney World or something. Like you go click, 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 and then you go zooming down. You have this great height, and then you go really, really low uh, where Jesus basically loses all of the the disciples except for maybe the dozen that he has left over. So Jesus has like the worst church growth strategy in the history of man here in John chapter 6. It goes all the way up to like 20,000 people, and then it plummets all the way down to about a dozen, and one of those guys' name is Judas, so you can't be real happy about that either, right? So that's what we see. But in the midst of this, feeding of the 5,000, we have this story of Jesus walking on water. So I'm going to read uh, John chapter 6, verses 15 through 29. I'm not sure I'm going to get that far, um, but it is what it is, right? So hear the word of the Lord. Uh, starting in verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Again, that's all the people whose bellies were full. All their bellies were full of bread and fish. They were to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. "'The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. "'When they had rowed about three or four miles, "'they saw Jesus walking on the sea "'and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. "'But he said to them, "'It is I, do not be afraid.' "'Then they were glad to take him into the boat, "'and immediately the boat was at the land "'to which they were going. "'On the next day, the crowd that remained "'on the other side of the sea "'saw that there had been only one boat there "'and that Jesus had not entered the boat "'with his disciples, "'but that his disciples had gone away alone.' Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, remember, truly truly we talked about this a couple weeks ago when jesus says truly truly there's 25 places in the gospel of john that he says truly truly he's about to reveal himself as the messiah as jesus as the anointed one the one that everybody's been expecting every time he says truly truly just all right hopefully you're paying attention all right truly truly i say to you you are not seeking me not because you saw signs but because you ate your fill of the loaves do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. For on him, God, the father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And we all say the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Okay, so here's where we are. We see this passage uh, taking place, you know, again, around the sea, around Capernaum, and what we find is that, you know, the people are so excited about Jesus because he's fed their bellies. They have been nurtured, uh, they've been filled, and they're like, we're going to make Jesus our king. And Jesus didn't come to be their king. He didn't come to just rule Israel. He came to redeem, and then one day he's going to come back and he's going to rule and reign over everything, not just a small area, but the whole world. And so Jesus says, no, it's not my time yet. So Jesus does like this crazy little hide-and-go-seek kind of thing. And so he goes off and withdraws to the mountain by himself. Now again, this is, you know, Jesus allowing himself to withdraw again to the mountain. And again, Jesus withdraws himself to the mountain because in the midst of his miracles, in the midst of all that he does, you see that Jesus has a time where he says, I need prayer. I need time with my Father. I need quiet time. I think that this isn't a major point. This is just a, a note. All of us need a little bit of quiet time right now, right? I mean, we all need to get away. We all need to, to go to, whether it's a mountain or our prayer closet, and actually spend time with our Father. And if Jesus needed it, we certainly need it. Um, all right, I'm, I'm going to digress. Application point, okay? How many of you think in your head, I'm about to go on vacation and have a couple weeks off? right or at least things are down right i mean like things are i mean you can't get anything done business wise from like december i don't know like 10th through like january 20th anymore right like everything shuts down for the holidays right for christmas and in the midst of or if you're a student and you're going to get 2 weeks off or your mom or dad you're going to have time off you think in your head man i'm going to go on vacation and it's going to be great but what happens is you have great intentions Of spending more time in your Bible, more time in prayer, and thinking, like, this is going to be great. I can spend time with the Father, and yet what happens is when we get out of our routine, we actually spend less time with Jesus. Anybody have that problem, or is it just me? Like, you have great intentions, and yet you go, wow, I had all this free time, and I fill it up with a bunch of, you know, whatever. We need To be doing this so as you go into the christmas season as you go into time i mean schedule your priorities schedule them say i have a time that i need to meet with jesus i had a campus director in crusade uh, and crew at jmu uh, and uh, we would walk into this bagel shop and it was called mr j's bagels and we would go in and we'd see dan flynn and we'd say hey dan uh, and dan would meet with people from time to time and we would say hey dan who are you meeting with And Dan says, oh, I've got a really, really important meeting right over there in that booth. Look, who are you meeting with? He goes, I'm meeting with Jesus. (laughs) He goes, I'm meeting with Jesus. I meet with Jesus there every morning from 9 to 9.45. He goes, that's my time to meet with him. I was like, yeah, but do you ever meet with anybody else? He goes, no, that is the one person that I need to meet with every day. And he's had it scheduled. So as you have time off, schedule that. Go be by yourself with your Bible and Jesus. You need it. I need it. Don't allow your vacation and the amount of time that you have, which is, becomes expansive, to be used for little for your soul. There you go. All right. That's one sermon. Let me go to another one. All right. Sometimes I just kind of, you know, if you give me a mic, that's just kind of what happens. You, know, like you give a mouse a cookie. You know, it's kind of, here, here's how it goes. So, this is, But this particular miracle that we see, when evening came, uh, we see a parallel account of this in the, in the gospel of Matthew. We see this um, in, in Matthew, and, and he elaborates upon this just a little bit and gives a little bit uh, of a different spin on this particular miracle. I'm going to read that for you because you see some details that John does not give. Now, there's a reason for that, but look at what Matthew says in, in Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately, and again, this is right after the feeding of the 5,000. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him. Okay? So the same, same thing, but John doesn't notice this. He made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. Now, this means we're probably like 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. La- last watch of the night, fourth watch of the night, that's the last one. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, there's a couple things from John, but as well as what we see in in the Gospel of Matthew. And here's the first point for today's sermon, is that Jesus actually leads you into the storms of life sometimes. He, in, in Matthew, it says he made them get into the boat. Now, there was another um, story in the Gospels, and John doesn't tell this story, uh, but where Jesus is with the disciples, and he's asleep, and they're on the Sea of Galilee, and, and, and again, everything is churning, right? And they go, Jesus, aren't you, aren't you, aren't you worried that we're going to die? And he's like, what? Stop. Everything gets calm, right? But this time, Jesus isn't with the disciples. Jesus sends them out. He sends them out into the storm. You know, Jesus forced and compelled and told his disciples to go across the sea and go into a small boat. And, and remember, these guys are not rookies, right? Like these are, you know, professional fishermen. These are not guys um, who get into a, a canoe for the very first time and you know they're going to tip it over, over and over again, right? These are guys who have been around the water, who understand how to get from point A to point B. They understand, and, and, and I love this too. We don't see this, but remember, they're, they're in this horrible storm and their bellies are full of bread and fish. And you guys ever been seasick before? It is not good, especially in a small boat, especially as you're churning what's going on. You see, what's, what's going on here, and then again, as we think about the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee uh, is located, you know, 600 feet below sea level, and you have these huge mountains of like 9,200 feet from Mount Hermon. And what you have is you have these winds, this warm air, or this cold air that comes sweeping down towards the Sea of Galilee from the east and from the west. And what happens is uh, it, it hits. Um, and, and when it hits, when the cold air descends from Mount Hermon's Crown at 9,200 feet above sea level and crashes down against the warm air at the level of the, uh, of the lake, violent storms suddenly occur. Let me read for you um, a man named Thompson who speaks about this particular um, uh, set. He says this, again, this is, um, he, he wrote this in the early, really in the late 1800s. He says, "At first sight, it may be surprising that the waters of an inland lake like the Sea of Galilee could be so much agitated, but it is remarkable that the testimony of travelers in modern times is distinct that this lake is peculiarly liable to be visited by violent squalls of wind and to become very rough while they last." Um, This American traveler, Thompson, says, "My experience in this region enabled me to be to sympathize with the disciples in their long night's contest with the wind." "'I have seen the face of the lake like a huge boiling cauldron. "'The wind howled down from the valleys from the northeast and east "'with with such fury that no efforts of rowers could have brought a boat to shore "'at any point along that coast.' To understand the cause of these sudden and violent tempests, we must remember the lake lies low, 600 feet lower than the ocean, that water courses have cut out profound ravines and wild gorges converging to the head of the lake, and that these act like gigantic funnels to draw down the cold winds from the mountains. On the occasion referred to, get this, he pitched his tent on the shore and remained there for three days and nights exposed to this tremendous wind. We had to double pin all the tent ropes, and frequently we were obliged to hang with our whole weight upon them to keep the quivering tent from being carried up bodily into the air. No wonder the disciples toiled and rode hard all that night. Can you imagine? Like the wind is blowing so hard. He has to put all of his weight on the tent pegs just so that his tent that's on the shore doesn't go flying. And he goes, I understand what the disciples were going through. And what we find is that um, we often see this in the midst of Scripture. That we have just gone from the heights of an amazing miracle. Jesus feeds 5,000 men, up upwards of 20,000 people. And that's a mountaintop sort of experience. And then what happens right after that, think about it from the disciple's perspective. If you're a disciple of Christ, how often are you at a mountaintop? I mean, some of you have experienced this, right? Where you have felt so close to God in the midst of your communion with him that you feel so connected to him. And if you're a a disciple and you've just gone through the feeding of the 5,000, yes, it was was work. Your miracles do take work, but at the same time, you're at a height. You're at a mountaintop experience. And, And many of you know this, right? Like there are moments in your life, moments in your relationship with Jesus when you feel so connected to him. It might be when, you, when you're singing your favorite song on Sunday. You come in, you see your favorite song, and you're singing it, and you feel like, man, I feel so connected to the Lord God right now. Some of you have that feeling going on. There are other times in the midst of prayer where you feel so connected to the Lord that you can't help, and maybe even uh, tears flow down your eyes because you feel so overwhelmed by what's going on. We, we think of those as mountaintop experiences, right? Or maybe it's every Sunday when you listen to me preach, right? <laughs> Shouldn't be any laughter. This is terrible. Okay, all right, I'm just kidding, right? But there are times when the Spirit of God, working through the Word of God, gives you such a sense of communion with God that you say, I feel so close, and, and, and it's a wonderful thing. But I got to tell you, we don't live on the mountaintop, do we? We don't live on the mountaintop. And, and what this story is telling us is that oftentimes we go from the mountaintop and we go right into the storms of life. And Jesus actually compels us into the storms of life, tells the disciples. Now this is true in scripture, this is true in Jesus' life, right? Like we see this, like Jesus' baptism. When Jesus was baptized and when we think about this, I'm thinking about these in the the midst of uh, Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter three, when Jesus is baptized, you know, this is a a height. You know, the the voice from heaven says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Do you know what happens after he's baptized in Matthew chapter three? He goes into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil in Matthew chapter four. Heights to, to trials, or how about the transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17? Uh, we find that you know, Jesus is with Peter, James, and John, and, and Elijah and Moses are there, and Peter says, hey, we should build some tents. And you know, this mountaintop experience where the, where the glory of God is revealed, he goes right from that down the mountain, and he actually has to go heal a boy who's possessed by a demonic spirit from the heights to the low. Or think about in you know, Matthew, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 26, where we actually have Jesus and the Passover, and Jesus with the institution of the Lord's Supper. The disciples are thinking, this is, this is probably the, one of the greatest nights we've ever had. We just got to you know, have supper with Jesus. Where does Jesus go from there? He goes to the betrayal by Judas. You see, we go heights, and then oftentimes we see the valleys. And what happens is, In the midst of this, we find that, you know, the Lord is working great and deep faith in us. You know, the J.C. Ryle says this. He says, from witnessing a mighty miracle and helping it instrumentally, meaning the feeding of the 5,000, amidst an admiring crowd to solitude, darkness, winds, waves, storm, anxiety, and danger, the change was very great. But Christ knew it. And Christ appointed it, and it was working for their good. Trial, we must, dis- we, we must distinctly understand, is part of the diet, which all Christians must expect. It is one of the means by which their grace is, imp- is proved, and by which they find out what there is in themselves. Winter as well as summer, cold as well as heat, clouds as well as sunshine, are all necessary to bring the fruit of the Spirit to ripeness and maturity. And we do not naturally like this. We would rather cross the lake with calm weather and favorable winds, with Christ always by our side and the sun shining down on our faces, but it may not be. It is not in this way that God's children are made partakers of his holiness. Abraham and Jacob and Moses and David and Job were all men of many trials. Let us be content to walk in their footsteps and to drink of their cup. In our darkest hours, we may seem to be left, but we are never really alone. You know, it seems like um, these thunderstorms, these difficulties, you happen. And like the psalmist, we might say, Lord, deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Do not let the flood waters engulf me or the depths swallow me up. It's a, it's a hard, hard thing for us to do. You know, the, um, Philip Ryken, um says this. He said, the, the disciples were in trouble because they, they had steered their boat into contrary winds. What is the meaning of this? Our Lord is saying, those of you who have decided to follow me as your Savior are going to be sailing your vessel into the winds of life. You are going to have trouble. But obey Anyway. There are two ways to get into storms. One is to flee God's will like Jonah did. A great storm blew up and he ended up in a fish's belly. That is different from the disciples' situation. They were in the midst of the storm because they were obedient to God. Those who decide to follow Christ and give their allegiance will face contrary winds, no doubt about it. Moses would never have felt rejected by a complaining people if at the burning bush he had decided not to obey Jehovah. Daniel would never had, have had to face a lion's den if he had not decided to be faithful to God. Just think of how much persecution Paul would have avoided if he had just stayed in Tarsus. But then these great men would have never known the refreshing winds of the Holy Spirit flowing through their lives. Yes, following Christ will take us into some fierce storms, but the rewards are even greater. You feel that way sometimes? You feel that way that, that you actually are in this storm because you obeyed Jesus? Lord, I'm, I'm in this situation because I was being faithful to you. And, and, and you begin to justify like, well, what good is it for me to actually follow Jesus if my life becomes more difficult? If my friends begin to reject me? If other people want to actually dissuade me or actually speak poorly about me, like this isn't what I signed up for. And yet it's in the midst of these storms of life that the Lord actually has you sail into, where he is revealing what you are trusting and he is drawing you to himself. And he does it because he loves you. You know, the call of obedience to trials is, is, is difficult. Um, but look at what happens in the midst of this, you know, in, in John chapter 6, as we go back to, 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 the, to the narrative. So Jesus, who sees the trials, who's ordained the trials, who sent the disciples into the trials, what does Jesus do? He shows up. He doesn't leave them. He shows up. Look at what it says in John chapter 6, you know, verse 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Of course they were frightened. They had never seen anybody walk on the sea before, right? Nobody. I mean, this is a miracle. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Now, this is one of the, the most oft-repeated commandments in all of Scripture, do not be afraid, fear not. We actually, I think we see it 366 times within the Scriptures, fear not. And why is that significant? Because you and I need it every single day, and even on leap year, we need it. 366 times we need to be reminded, do not fear, for if I am with you, you are okay. Like, I need to hear that all the time. Every counseling appointment, every opportunity, as as I preach, as we live, as we parent, as we all of these things, you know, in the midst of life, we need to hear, do not be afraid, for I am with you. Like, I need that over and over again, because Jesus shows up. And, and actually, there, there could be two miracles in here. I'm not really sure how it works out. But w- look at what happens. And when he says, it is I do not be afraid, then they were glad to take him into the boat. Now, at this point, they're probably clicking in like, last time we had storms on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus got into our boat, everything went really, really smooth. So we're more than happy to take Jesus into the boat at this point. And look at what happens in John chapter 6. John actually says, But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, I don't know if that's the second miracle in this particular section, meaning that Jesus got into the boat and bam, they're at the other side where they were supposed to go. These guys had been rowing for hours, professional fishermen, and they hadn't gotten anywhere. And immediately it says they were at the other side. Now, I don't know if that's what happened or— Or if they brought Jesus into the boat and being with Jesus was such a sweet time of fellowship and so encouraging to their souls that it seemed like it was no time at all before they reached the other side. I'm not sure. But I do know this. When you are spending time with those that you love, doesn't it seem like the time just flies by Doesn't it seem like the time just goes by really, really quickly? I remember, um, my wife's not here today, so I can, she's back in the nursery, uh, so I can say all kinds of stuff today. Um, But I remember the first time we went on a date. You know, we went on a date in college. We were um, sophomores. It was springtime. And, you know, we had, I'd asked her to go on a picnic, you know, and because I'd heard from her that she liked picnics. And so, you know, like I, I did my research. I tried to figure things out you know? And so I went on a picnic with her. Well, that date, you know, that started at probably, I think it was about 11, you know, ended up like we went from 11 and we were in a park and then we went to see some friends and then we walked downtown to get ice cream and then it kind of went into dinner and we had pizza. And then I think we watched a movie with her, her friends. So we had a date that went from like 11 to like 10. And I got to tell you, you know, like that, it didn't seem like it was that long, you know? It didn't seem that it was long because we were, you know, we were together, and we enjoyed being together. It's the same with Jesus in the midst of the disciples. When you spend time with Jesus and you are in love with him, then time goes by really, really quickly. Now, here's what's going on. You know, Jesus, um, we see this in, um, when, when we think about Jesus showing up and Jesus taking away their fear and Jesus taking away what they have. Um, I think about Isaiah 43, verse two, where it says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You see, Jesus takes away their fear. Now, The other thing that happens in the midst of this, and I think that this is really the the key to this understanding, this particular miracle that takes place, is that what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to get them to understand that it's much more about being with me than what I can give you. That's the key to this. Because what he's saying is, when you're apart from me, you're on the storms of life, and you are scared and you are fearful and you will not make headway, but if I am with you, it'll be okay. Now, I think that's important, and that's why I read the other section, because what you find here in this miracle, in this, is you see this other section starting in verse 22. Now, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there, that there had only been one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with the disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. So other boats from Tiberias, so they're all looking for Jesus, Right? So when the crowd saw in verse 24 that they saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Now, why were they seeking Jesus? Now, This is what's interesting about this particular passage is because Jesus knows exactly why, you know, everybody is doing whatever. Like oftentimes, have you ever been in a, um, you know, some, some healthy discourse with maybe your spouse? And in the, the moment of that um, they actually uh, begin to ascribe motive to why you did what you did. Like, well, the reason you did this was because of this. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You don't know what my motives were. Now, now it's probably very evident what your motives were because you were not being very kind. But at the same time, it's very hard to, uh, so when somebody begins to ascribe motive to why you did what you did. I don't know, maybe I'm just kind of giving you my own yeah, marriage thing here, okay? But I just find that this is the case. We begin to ascribe motive to other people. The problem with Jesus is he knows all of our motives. Like, he knows every motive. Like, he knows why you showed up here this morning. Was it for Jesus or was it for some other reason? You know, what, why do we do what we do? Jesus already knows. Now, in verse 25, um, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered him. They don't even, he just kind of, he says truly, truly. Again, that's a, a declarative statement that he's making. I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And what they're saying is this. Jesus is saying, you're coming because I filled your belly. You're not coming to worship me. You're coming because you think if you come to me, everything in your life will be Easy from now on. Now, I want you to know this. We don't follow Jesus at our church because he will make our life better. We follow Jesus because he is better than life. You got that? We don't follow him because he makes our life better. We follow him because he's better than life itself. Now, As we think about this, I want you to see this. Jesus knows the crowd, and he asks this question. um, Why are you coming to me? And he he answers them, and and they're perplexed by this. He says, in verse 27, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for in him God the Father has set his seal. Now, what he says there is that everybody is pursuing all of these things, thinking that these things will satisfy you. And he's saying, I don't want you to pursue these things, but rather, I want you to pursue me. Now, they they respond to him in this way. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Which is, which is really saying, how do I earn my salvation? What, do, what must I do? What must I say? How many good works is it going to take for me to get into heaven? Let me know, right? Like, that's what they're asking. Because really, that's what, how most of us live. Like, by how much good must I do? And Jesus says to them, he answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. This is the work of God, that you believe in him, who he has sent. Essentially, what he's saying is, you've asked the wrong question in verse 28. Because they asked, what must we do? And the question should have been asked, what has been done? And Jesus says, you must believe in me. If you believe and trust in me, then you will be with me forever. You will have eternal life. Now, this is um, not something that is, that is new for us, but it is something that we look at and we go, okay, they were really thinking that they had to earn their salvation. And what Jesus says is, you don't earn it. I give it to you. It's a gift. I mean, that's one of the, the beautiful things about Christmas, right? One of the beautiful things about Christmas is getting gifts. You're being able to receive a gift and what do you have to do to receive a gift? You just have to take it. Somebody gives you something, you just receive it. And what Jesus is saying about the gospel is he's saying, believe in me, trust in me. It's a gift. Just receive it. Now, what we find here is that um, the, the, the people that are, that are struggling with this, I mean, we see this in, uh, let, me, let me quote James Boyce as he talks about this. He says, um, when people are coming to Jesus for wrong reasons, he says, do you do that when you seek Jesus? Do you come with your mind filled, not so much with Jesus and his all-surpassing worth, but with your needs or with what you imagine your needs to be? I am convinced that in our day in American Christianity, there is a lamentable tendency to focus on human need rather than on God himself. I am equally convinced that this is the worst possible way to actually have the need met and to achieve a healthy Christianity. I know that someone will say, but how can that be? Isn't it true that people do have needs? The answer is yes, they do. And isn't it true that Jesus is the answer to those needs? The reply is, yes, he is. Shouldn't we therefore preach Jesus Christ as the answer to people's needs? The only proper reply is, yes, we should. Well, then what is wrong? What is wrong is that it is tragically possible to so focus on our needs that we are actually focusing on ourselves rather than on Jesus. And so never get to the solution to our problem that Jesus wants to bring. That we get so focused on our own issues that our own issues become elevated to the point of idolatry in our life, to the point where we are just continuing to worship them or ourselves and we don't pursue Jesus. You see, one of the things that occurs in the Christian life is that you don't get happiness by pursuing happiness. You get happiness by pursuing Jesus. The blessed life is derivative of a faith in Jesus, in a pursuit of Jesus, and of love for Jesus. What Jesus is trying to do is dissuade the crowds that are coming to him, and saying, you are coming because you think I will meet your needs. Now, think about this. Um, The other thing that occurs, and this is my last point before we move into communion, what he also says in the midst of this is he says, do not labor for this, right? Um, he says, in, in let me go back to my notes here. He says, do not labor, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures eternal life. So what he's saying there is that certainly it's grace in our lives, right? Like it's grace. We're saved by grace through faith alone and Christ alone, You know, that's what we believe. And yet at the same time, um, Jesus is saying, but we do want you to labor. We do want you to work in this way. Do not work for the the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Meaning that we should be working for the food that endures to eternal life. Now, I just told you that salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, right? And yet what I'm telling you is we need to be doing everything. Be effort-filled in our life of faith, meaning that we need to be pursuing Jesus, and, and just like that, that first part of the you know the, the story where I said, "Hey, in, in the midst of the holidays, you need to be pursuing Christ." I want you to think about it in this way, and you know, again, uh, I'll pick up probably my, my favorite author is um, J.C. Ryle, where he says this. Um, he tells us to labor. He Jesus, he would have us take. Pains to find food and satisfaction for our souls. That food is provided in rich abundance in Him. But He that would have it must diligently seek it. How are we to labor? There is but one answer. We must labor in the use of all appointed means. We must read our Bibles like men digging for hidden treasure. We must wrestle earnestly in prayer like men contending with a deadly enemy for life. We must take our whole heart to the house of God and worship and hear like those who listen to the reading of a will. You get that? I love that. He's saying, imagine that you you have a wealthy relative and they've invited you to to listen to the will, because you might be in it. You might pay attention. You might take some notes. You might be really, really anticipatory for what's going to be said. And that's how we're to to listen to the reading. Um, We must fight daily against sin, the world, and the devil, like those who fight for liberty, and must conquer or be slaves. These are the ways we must walk in if we would find Christ and be found of him. This is laboring. This is the secret of getting on about our souls. But he says, unfortunately, labor like this is no doubt is very uncommon. He goes, in carrying it on, we shall have little encouragement from man and shall often be told that we are extreme and go too far. The world, if you are pursuing Christ, with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, some people in the world are going to go, you must be one of those Jesus freaks. You must be a fanatic. And you know what you have to say? Like, yes, I wish, you know, I wish we had as many Jesus jerseys as we do as I see Mahomes jerseys on Sunday. You know what I mean? That's not a knock on Mahomes. I'm trying to raise Jesus there, okay? Strange and absurd as it is, the natural man is always fancying that we may take too much thought about religion and refusing to see that we are far more likely to take too much thought about the world. But whatever man may say, the soul will never get spiritual food without labor. We must strive, we must run, we must fight, we must throw our whole heart into our soul's affairs. That's what Ryle says. All of us, like we need to be pursuing that. You're pursuing Jesus the, the, the struggle with me, uh, and, and for you, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, is that oftentimes I labor for that which will not be beneficial to my soul. And I need times, I need time with my Father to reorient and to reset my affections. That's what we do on Sunday morning. That's why the rhythm of God is come every Sunday so that you can renew your covenant faithfulness to Him and have a reset. Lord, help me to pursue you with all that I am. Help me to be reminded of what Jesus has said to us when he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Lord, grow my belief. And and that belief is just not knowledge, but Lord, grow that trust in my soul that I trust you with all that I have. You guys know that, um, you guys know this story. The story is of, of Abraham in Genesis you know, 22, where Genesis, where, where Abraham has been waiting for his, his whole life. You know, G, you know, Abraham is told in Genesis 12, 15, and 17 that you have descendants like the stars of the heaven, um, you know, like the sand of the seashore. And and, and at one point, you know, Abraham doesn't believe that God is actually going to give him a son. So he takes matters into his own hand. That's Genesis 16. And then we see circumcision. We see all kinds of other things. But eventually, we see that Abraham receives a son, Isaac. And then God says, but I want to test Abraham to see if Abraham really loves me or he loves that which I can give him. So he tests him. And he said, I want you to go to Mount Moriah, and I want you to take your only son, the one that was promised to you, and I want you to sacrifice him to me in an act of worship. And Abraham, can you imagine the the travail that Abraham's under? But Abraham, through great faith, says, I believe that, and we learned this in Hebrews, that Abraham believed because he thought that, well, if something happens to Isaac, then the Lord can raise him from the dead. So I'm gonna trust So he takes his most valuable thing that he's ever gotten, his son, and he takes him to Mount Moriah. And right as he's about to sacrifice his son, the Lord provides a ram in the thicket. And he says, no, Abraham, don't. Rather, sacrifice this ram in the place. You see, what God was doing was he was saying, does Abraham love me, or does he love the things that I can give him? I think a lot of times I get caught up in thinking that that prayer sometimes is like a like a magic formula where I can just get God to do what I want him to do. Like a genie in a bottle. And what God wants is he wants you to love him, not the things that come from him. We struggle with that. Or at least I do. And when I struggle with that, I'm also reminded that the Lord gives us signs and seals of the covenant of grace. And he says, you're going to fail, and you're going to fail over and over again, but I'm going to give you these signs to remind you that you are forgiven and that you are loved. Yeah, you know, this is the table that the Lord sets for us. It's not the table of grace, Presbyterian Church, but rather it is the table of the Lord, and he invites all those who trust and believe. Even if you have a weak a weak faith. He says, come and believe and have your faith, you know, deepened. Have your faith grow so that you might love more. You know, this bread represents his body broken for you. And this cup that's filled with this fruit of the vine, this, this juice represents his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And he invites all those who trust and believe to take and feast upon his body, to drink his blood. But we think about this in this way, that, that through the blood of Christ, we are forgiven through his sacrifice on our behalf. You see, God actually did sacrifice his son for us so that on the cross, all of our sins are placed upon him and all of his righteousness is credited to our account. And we are loved and we are forgiven. And that is good news. So when my heart is is not full of affection for, for God, I need this table. I need the gospel to remind me that I'm forgiven. And then it builds my faith. And I can fall more deeply in love with my Savior. In 1 Corinthians, we read the, the words of institution. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Brothers and sisters, this is actually a sweet labor that we get to do today. Because as we come forward, as we labor and come forward, we know that (laughs) that Jesus has already paid the price for our salvation. But by coming... You are using the means of grace which God has afforded his people to deepen your faith, to strengthen your resolve, and to grow your love for our Savior. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that you would bless this bread and this juice, and that, Father, that we would know that we are saved and forgiven. And, Father, in the midst of the trials of life, in the midst of the trials that you even lead us to, Father, you are always with us. And I pray, Lord, that we would be reminded that you love us and are always with us. You never leave us nor forsake us, so help us, Father. So, Father, set apart these common elements so that we might have the grace of God poured out upon us in abundance. Father, help us to delight in you because of who you are, not because of what you can do for us.